Welcome to Blind Shovel, an arts and music podcast. Today I had the pleasure of speaking with comic connoisseur Jim Jamie James Bradshaw. Enjoy. Hello. Hi. What's up? Uh, nothing much. I'm glad uh, we got that sorted out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, which... Your name is Jim Jamie James Bradshaw. Sure. Let's go with Jim for the sake of, of this, yeah. Okay. Right on. And you live it in was, Toronto? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, James on the birth certificate, uh, Jamie as a kid, Jim trying to assert myself as mature in high school and then Mm -hmm. jamie as a much more kind of a feminine adult and then that just left me with a whole bunch of people calling me all these different names i I just couldn't pick one so anyways let's go with jim for now it's short and easy gotcha no it's a cool name (laughs) i guess thanks um so this is are are we doing a bit of a preamble are we straight to uh, what no i upload i always just go straight Oh goodness. Okay. Well, I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to like awkwardly and make excuses and say that I'm, you know, anxious and not accustomed to this. But I guess we'll just throw that in there. And so, yeah, you know, I like I said, I was a little surprised that you even asked me. I'm excited to talk about this stuff, but I don't socialize a ton in my regular life, or mm-hmm. I blather about this stuff, you know, in stories on Instagram a lot. But <laughs> in person chatting, I rarely do. And even you know, my few in real life friends I see with frequency don't <laughs> care about it much. So, uh, really? yeah, I'm, I'm not really, no, they're, they're old friends. I kind of slowly developed this taste weirdly on my own. My, you know, my partner humors me a lot, but, uh, most, most of this, yeah, I don't talk about it a lot, like in real life, certainly. So I feel almost like I'll be a little rusty for that, but yeah, I still think we'll do well. You know, I get excited, and like I say, my, my partner listens to me monologue often enough, so having somebody who is receptive and, and knows what I'm talking about uh, sounds exciting. Yeah, that's great. I was actually going to ask you about that, how you got into this very specific aesthetic, which I think we both appreciate a lot, and you kind of said you, you feel you developed or fell into it on your own, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess it's a merger of things. I don't know if you mean the vintage manga aesthetic or the sort of maybe, I guess, the slightly more surreal side of the vintage manga aesthetic. However, that being said, you know, I, I, I who I kind of talk about and enjoy the most is, is uh, Tezuka Osamu, who certainly is not a surrealist by any means. You know, he's a pretty straightforward cartoonist. So I, I guess... For me, my, my main influences originally were, I'm from Toronto, mm-hmm. so the Toronto Three were, in terms of indie comics, a big deal to me. Chester, uh, Chester Brown, Joe mm-hmm. Matt, who just passed away recently, and Seth, that mattered. They, you know, that was very formative to me. Clean, clean cartooning. Uh, I sort mm-hmm. of learned an appreciation of that from them. Mark Bell, as well, 
really important to me in terms of getting into the sillier kind of, the, and that starts leaning surreal in terms of a taste in cartooning. Uh, and in terms of Japanese content, I'm not actually like a lot of people. Uh, I wasn't interested in it much when I was younger. And I got into it into the most like pedestrian ways possible. I got into Death Note when it, when it was new. It was the first like anime that I saw. I was in a rough time. My mom was like dying from ALS. It was terrible. And I got really, somebody showed it to me and I got crazy into it. And I started to watch like really lengthy shonen anime shows like Bleach and stuff. And that slowly, you know, this was like maybe 15 years ago, like when Death Note was first coming out as a cartoon. And, um, yeah, that I, 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 for a lot of my twenties, I really wasn't into comics. I, I just wasn't financially there, wasn't interested. And uh, I think what I remember, I think the the first main thoroughfare was sort of getting yeah, into just the most pedestrian kind of anime possible. And then I picked up a copy of Dororo at Chapters once, mm-hmm. and um, this the specific image stuck with me where. Uh, part of uh, Hyakimaru's backstory is that he was at a, like a, a village uh, or at an orphanage that was burned down. And the kids in it that shows these these destitute orphans that have been burnt and are covered in burns. But they're so incredibly cute. <laughs> it's not horrific imagery. It's clean cartooning. Uh, and... It's it, it was just a really strange juxtaposition to me that there could be this really dark kind of matter and dark storytelling, but served in this cute, charming, clean, straightforward manner. Uh, I don't know. Uh, not at, also that the the cover packaging on that Dororo book blew my mind. The uh, it's the vertical edition. It's the way it still looks now with co- all this uh, collage of of anatomy and stuff. Yes, really I, I believe I own that one, and I have a similar feeling about that book. It's uh, it's it's amazing. Yeah, and uh, that got me into it. And then uh, it was just kind of a slow process. That was probably about fourteen years ago, and then I just started slowly learning more and more about Tezuka with time, and branched out and got really interested in uh, Sugiro Shigeru as well, and redeveloped my interest in the modern, yeah, uh, indie western scene as well. And uh, yeah. So what yeah. was the because I'm not sure exactly what you would call yourself in respect. You're not like a historian per se, but uh, you seem to be more than a collector. I mean, not really, if anything. I guess that's no. why I felt the need to, to shrug a little at the start of this. I think I'm a particular, I guess I'm a knowledgeable fan. I think mm-hmm. to, if you're talking about manga, you really can't consider yourself an academic or a scholar if you don't speak or read Japanese, right? You have a very, yeah. you have, you're very limited in how much use you have. Um, but that being said, you know, if you there's only a handful of books on Tezuka out there, if you've read them, then you're going to be more knowledgeable than, say, you know, 99% of the people who are passively interested. Tezuka gets a lot of um, respect, kind of, but idle respect, not... sure. Uh, so much a rabid fan base, just like, oh, he's real great. Oh, he worked real hard. Oh, he's very important to comicking. Um, but yeah, not a kind of a crazy fan base. Well, I mean, it's hard to say, but it, it, it's it's weird because he's on the fringes of, of a few different scenes, I guess. Traditional manga fans aren't, modern manga fans aren't interested in much of the older looking stuff. And yeah, I don't know. He's just, he's a bit of a, I think he gets a lot of, 
yeah, sort of idol respect as, as a paragon of the scene, but doesn't have a ton of rabid fans. And I don't know how I landed in that situation, but um, yeah. So no, I'm really just a, a fan who's, I guess, a bit more knowledgeable than most. And that's sort of why I see my expertise in just being a couple of guys that I've, you know, read up on. Uh, I did uh, a little article for Bubbles about the English history of Sugiura, Shigeru Sugiura's publications uh, when Bubbles first came out, and I was really excited about it, and I mean, I still am today. Uh, mm -hmm. And a Tezuka, a few Tezuka articles for him as well since then. And I interviewed Jesse Jacobs. Um, those would be all of my credentials, you know, really, uh, as a journalist of any kind. And even that, I'd be pretty hesitant to, to call myself that because it was, you know, stuff I was just doing my after hours from work. Uh, so, no, really just honestly knowledgeable, relatively knowledgeable fan is, is all I'd call myself and, and collector, really. Um, and even yeah, as, yeah, yeah. as a collector, I'm in the low budget range, you know, but because I've been at it for you know, 10 to 15 years or whatever, I still have quite a bit of neat stuff. But, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do feel indebted to people like you because, especially in the Tumblr days, I feel like this is how I saw all of this stuff. People who were willing to share what they owned and what I didn't own. Mm -hmm. and, and also there's like this this type of person I'm interested in who's willing to scan things and catalog things and put them on the internet. Right. And I think they're part of an ecosystem that's worth gaining perspective on. And that's why I wanted to interview you because I think it's important. It's also different than how I think about the world. And, and I don't know, I don't uh, tend to catalog in that way or, or put that up on a social media. Mm -hmm. And also there's just a, almost everything you like, I like. Mm -hmm. So it, it signals to me like, one, we're not isolated. And I know a lot of people who like this work as well, comic artists. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting to talk about what are the unifying features of that. And it's interesting that you mentioned clean cartooning because mm -hmm. um, it's something I never thought about, but it's certainly an aspect of what I like about it. Mm -hmm. um, and why I'm probably drawn to the older works because the printing is more dirty. Mm -hmm. um, because yeah, it breaks sure. the cleanliness and mm -hmm. uh, obviously Rizzo is a good way to re enter into that kind of like for sure uh, texture mm -hmm. um, but in respect to Tezuka I'm kind of curious where you think he you know he made so much work and sometimes I'm reading his stuff and I'm just like this is not hitting you know like it's just not mm -hmm. working for me for sure but I'm curious I'm sure you know more about him than than I um, what, like, this is a trite question, but what is his favorite book or most enjoyable book that you read of his? Um, I, you know, honestly, it, it's, uh, even though we're already retraining the same ground, despite the fact that he has such a prolific, uh, body of work, uh, it's probably still Dororo, actually. It seems to me kind of be a real, despite the fact that he's borrowing a lot of ideas and themes in that one and and ones that aren't emblematic like i mean i guess to already start a bit of a tangent dororo is notable because he doesn't do a, do a ton of work in feudal japan and he doesn't do a ton of work with with yokai and both of them are uh you know or i guess for listeners who are don't aren't familiar yokai are you know just japanese folklore spirits or whatever um 
uh, he doesn't tread with deal with those often and a lot, but who did were Shigeru Mizuki and uh, Shate Sanpo, or who, San, yeah, anyways, uh, who were very popular and, and their popularity in Garo and the Gekiga movement, th- those were their two staples. Sanpei was all about you know, uh, feudal Japan and downtrodden villagers and, um, Shigeru Mizuki was all about yokai. And, uh, these were the guys kind of stealing Tezuka's fan base at the new face of comics and, and Gekiga and stuff like that. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that he pulled from both of these big themes that were very popular in Garo for one of his attempts to, mature himself as an artist you know he really fought against the kind of gekiga scene at first and then Hmm. eventually decided to you know adapt himself to it and so although he's borrowing these themes from other places i still think that the end result is something that's uniquely his and uh that i just absolutely love um it resonates a lot with with queer people. Tesca actually, although Tesca doesn't have a huge fan base, it has a very queer fan base. I've noticed, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 Doro specifically, and it, you know, had a recent uh, anime uh, on like Amazon Prime or something like that that did a lot to sort of uh, introduce a lot of people to the work. But yeah, I really love uh, Doro. I think it's really uh, an interesting piece. I love you know Phoenix, of course, like most. Uh, Tezuka fans, I think it's a really interesting work, unlike many others in uh, the oeuvre of comics in general. And uh, it's a premise that they worked on over the course of decades and it flops around through time. And um, But yeah, I really like that. But I, yeah, I am one of the people who, although I uh, have favorites and stuff like that, I do really like his, his really early, messy childish stuff, his you know, dark period, regardless of how much you might buy into the, the, the darkness. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you understand what even, I mean by that? Absolutely. Well, interestingly, uh, Tezuka didn't buy into his darkness. Like, okay, uh, okay. And to give he, context, we were texting beforehand about how I don't buy the darkness of, of MW specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting that you had mentioned kind of the, what you liked about Dororo where it's, uh, it presents a darkness with a kind of lightness, mm-hmm. levity. So that might go into it. But yeah, yeah, go on, go on. Um, yeah, uh, and and one of those those technicalities that you won't. Nor, uh, MW's technically said as mu, like the uh, I think it's like oh. a Greek letter. Even though I didn't I didn't know that for I don't know ten years uh, myself or whatever. But yeah, it's uh, you know I why think is that? Greek is there any logic logic behind that? I, I, I think it's a Greek letter or something. But no, I honestly don't know the reason. I, I, I but I just hmm. know that it to, it to be true. It's uh, it's the name of the chemical in the story. I believe that yeah yeah that affected them or whatever. Um. Yeah, wait, what was this? Uh... We were talking about the darkness. Uh, right, exactly. And, and him not buying into his own... Precisely. Does he make some admission of that? Definitely. Uh, so he, yeah, I guess, so, the, you know, you under, are you familiar with just the terms Garo or Gekiga? Yeah. 
So yeah, so they, these were well, you, you know, know like, can you just clarify it so people who listen because I think it's going to serve as a great introduction to this for kind sure. of work. For sure. So, you know, uh, Tezuka was very popular in the early 50s, having started something that's often referred to as story manga. I'm sure it has something in the Japanese is maybe a little more eloquent, but um, and just sort of more plot oriented manga that uh, went above a level that was generally done in manga for children throughout the 50s. And that's what he became partially very known for. Um, by the late 50s, these kind of fans were growing up in, in the early 60s and were starting to make comics of their own. Uh, one of the most notable being uh, Yoshihiro Tatsumi, who did, uh, who, who's, uh, you know, had his books released by Drawn and Quarterly and started a lot of interest in Gekiga uh, in the West. And so they kind of started the new scene of, of manga, the more mature scene of manga that had to do with you know, social issues, uh, financial strife, general existential problems, societal problems. And uh, Tatsumi, Yoshihiro Tatsumi was a big, he and, you know, it was a bunch of other people, they were kind of working, their thoroughfare was noir crime books, sort of, and the rental, you could rent manga books at the time, and that, that was a very popular thing. And they did these kind of noir crime things that were getting to be a little darker and a little more mature. Uh, and this kind of collective of guys who all sort of worked in this field all got together and said, you know, let's continue to mature the form. And um, the name that they collectively came up with, there was, you know, other ideas, but what Tatsumi came up with was Gekiga. And he wrote up a sort of mini manifesto, sent it out to journalists and different artists. Tezuka got a copy of it. He was referenced in this little mini kind of manifesto. I think it's called Introduction to the Gekiga Workshop. And them saying that he's, you know, he was incredibly important, that story manga was incredibly important. And now that they are excited to move the scene forward. Tezuka did not like this. He did not feel honored by these artists who loved him and revered him and, and were raised on his stuff. But he felt like he was being put out to pasture already, even though he'd only you know been in the scene like for ten years or something at this point in time. Um, and so he sort of wrote a response saying that, you know, these noir crime things and the the territory that Gekiga artists are moving into aren't for children, and manga is intrinsically for children, and uh, stuff like this. Um, what year would that be again? This was. Oh. Like around uh, 50 or no, 61, I think, okay. was when this happened. I could be wrong, though. Um, so anyhow, they would obviously carry on without him. And the magazine uh, Garo would premiere. It would be kind of the flagship magazine of the uh, Gekiga scene. And uh, yeah, you know, mature comicing would explode from there in Japan. And, and Tezuka would have no choice but to realize that, you know, if he was going to maintain relevancy, he'd have to adapt. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's sort of what he did. And not until, it took quite a while. It's probably not until the later 60s, or I should say really early to mid-60s, that he starts to put out work that is, is grown up. And... Um, one of them, I guess two of them that come to mind where I know I've read his afterwards and he's talked about essentially regretting these works were Vampire and Alabaster. Alabaster is 
officially available in uh, in English, and um, both of them contain like uh, a character named Rock Holmes, who was like a boy detective that he wrote for in the fifties, and in, in this iteration, Rock Holmes is now a a dark antagonist who is a sadist and in alabaster wildly racist and uh yeah they are they are sort of mature in tone in that they are violent and there are kidnappings and murders and rape um but he's not hitting the mark of the kind of social inequities and stuff because these aren't his realities right he's a rich kind of neoliberal artist so he's he's not hitting them the the social kind of tone that geki guy is going for mm-hmm. uh, he's just kind of going for dark content uh matter and sort of the most surface level possible that being said i love a lot of these books i'm talking about i want to sound like i'm denigrating them too much because i think a lot of the concepts are really interesting the very original works you know alabaster is about uh, a black athlete who shunned uh, by society goes to jail and then uh, some super science accidents has his skin turns invisible he becomes an anti-hero who wants to do away with uh, aesthetics in society and it, like it's it's, <laughs> it, it's crazy and he's he's sort of like I say the anti-hero whereas rock is the actual villain who is an overt racist and I mean they're crazy books they're really interesting you know um so yeah i think they're definitely worth a read but tezuka himself you know he got backlash from fans saying you know this isn't what we want from you basically you know and uh he struggled a lot with that he struggled with that his whole career trying to uh change with the times but also stay true to his fans. And he was felt never, he never felt happy with the middle ground. Essentially. He always felt like he was betraying himself or his readership or, you know, the future of comics. And he struggled with that his whole life, even though he was, you know, quite successful. Um, I think he kind of hit a, a, a stride, a uh, blackjack, which was, I think in 1973, was when his his major second resurgence of popularity, where he kind of stopped trying uh, to ape the Gekiga scene and hit like sort of um you know a, a thing that was uniquely his own really in these these medical thrillers and that blew up again. But the point is, yeah, that he struggled a lot with these waves of of darkness, and so his his afterwards that he would write like decades later are generally lamenting these works uh, alabaster vampire he blames a lot of different factors he blames that he sort of resented the student uh, protest movement at the time and all sorts of things he talks weirdly around a lot of it but essentially at the, at the base of it, a lot of it is just really jealousy on his part of the gekia artists and uh how hard he felt that he had to fight to stay relevant so was this like a seesaw motion where he'd go one extreme and then back to the other? In other words, a darker book and then trying to appease his earlier fan base? Or were there chunks of time? Um, you know what I mean? Like for sure, consistent chunks of time where he's like pursuing this or that. Yes and no. The only reason it's difficult to track something like that is because he was so prolific and was literally working on multiple projects at any given time. So mm-hmm. there was he was almost always working on 
something for younger audiences or something for mature audiences. And so how mature or, you know, how juvenile across those multiple projects is hard to track. Like, and, and then it gets that much more complicated when you start looking at his animation that he's doing at the same time. So, uh, yeah, which is bizarre. Like yeah. uh, that is, um, because they're not even like a, they're considered a trilogy to my knowledge, anime-rama, mm -hmm. but they don't have a visual language that is no. <laughs> consistent. And no. like Belladonna of Sadness is very different than A Thousand and One Nights. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I was shocked when I found those. I like found them on YouTube five years ago. And I was mm -hmm. like, what is, is this? I had no idea. Yeah, they're very weird works. Uh, he didn't, if I can't even remember if he, the first two, yeah, are A Thousand and One Nights and Cleopatra. I honestly can't recall if he directed them. I don't think he did. I don't think he directed any of them. And yeah, he had a lot less hands-on to do with Belladonna of, of Sadness uh, than the first two as well. Yeah, they are yeah. very odd, um, for sure. <laughs> Cleopatra may be the oddest, the way you know it starts with animated heads on live-action bodies in outer space which then they to figure out some sp some space rebel scheme they have to go back in time with their minds to the days of cleopatra to infer meaning of something and one of them ends up in a sexy leopard and it's <laughs> so strange um but I think really just, yeah, they're, they're really only considered a trilogy in that they are the three, you know, vaguely adult animation movies that he made. But the reason that there's three of them isn't because it's a willful trilogy. It's because they tanked his, uh, his animation studio. He, <laughs> he had uh, Mushi Productions was his animation studio. And I think also his manga studio. But... Um, yeah, they he they went under across those three movies partly because they're expensive. He spent a lot. He has a you know he's a weird mixed reputation in anime because he's known for you know he was uh, criticized by Miyazaki for Astro Boy um, being like the first kind of televised anime, and he did it. He said you know I will turn these out cheap and fast, and he set this incredibly low bar for Japanese animation studios um, that, you know, some have blamed him for still kind of harming the bottom line to this day. But that being said, he also bankrupted himself on spending on lavish experimental animations uh, that he was trying to win awards with and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, he was definitely very all over the place with his endeavors there. Um, yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, he was a doctor initially, yeah, or at least trying to be a doctor. No, he, doctor. he got he got his doctorate. He, fin he finished his doctorate. It, the when you look into his life, it you start to like it's wild have a hard time believing that all these things were happening concurrently. Like to look at this what he was doing in the late uh, '60s, where he has a live action show, uh, an animation. You t uh, he's running Com Magazine that he started. That's while he's doing Anime Rama. Uh, he's got tons. He started Phoenix. Like it, it's just nuts. So yes, early in his career, he finished his doctorate as uh, uh, not that far off, I think, or maybe concurrently with starting uh, Astro Boy, uh, the the anime that is. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's really really crazy. Um, 
And it, that is an know. interesting contrast, Miyazaki and him. Uh, I love Miyazaki, and I know more about Miyazaki than Tezuka. I know very and, little about Miyazaki, actually. Yeah, I've read most of the books about him, and it makes complete sense that he would be frustrated with this kind of, like, uh, what would you say, quantity over quality animation approach. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And he feels that, that Tezuka kind of set that bar, essentially, with... He was so eager to kind of get an animation deal that he said, you know, I'll, I'll churn out whatever I can. And he so he started kind of, you know, the wave of limited animation in Japan. Now, I love the original Astro Boy anime. I've got on lengthy tangents about the fact that, you know, the, the first half of it was dubbed into very kind of goofy uh, vocals and, and brought to the States. It was like a, you know, a staple for baby boomer kids or whatever. Um, I still really like it. The latter half, bafflingly to me, hasn't been uh, subbed or dubbed officially or unofficially. That's what really blows my mind, that no fan subbing group has even opted to do it yet uh, to this day. But it's um, he really did try to, he and his animators, of course, try to overcome this limitation with creative concepts and creative executions. And, uh, you know, I think it's one of those, like, you don't hate Tezuka, you hate capitalism things, where if it hadn't been him offering to studios, I'll do it as cheap as possible, somebody else would have, you know. We saw the same thing happen with Western animation, where... Hanna-Barbera were like this huge force to the 60s and 70s and stuff like that because they would do it on the cheap with with limited animation, you know? Um, limited animation, yeah, 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 being, you know, I guess as you know, but just for anyone else, you know, using a third of the number of frames in animating and uh, cutting corners wherever possible or whatever. So although he did initiate that, I feel that, you know, that's just, it's the nature of capitalism. Somebody will take the job and undercut if that's all that there any studio is willing to to pay for you know and it's not that he doesn't deserve some kind of uh i don't know ire for having started that way but again he also was an experimentalist when he could be and uh dumps sounds, his own personal yeah. money into it as well so he simply sounds practical like he's observing trends he's being realistic about things it reminds me of i believe toshio maeda in some interview Again, I was shocked by this idea, but when observing what he should, or thinking about his career when he was young and thinking about what he should draw, mm -hmm. he, determined, he determined that the people with the longest careers drawing in Japan were those who made erotic drawings. Right. And so he just decided to make what he makes. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm sure you know his work. Uh, um, I, don't, I don't think so, actually. Toshio Meiya... I mean, I, I could be mispronouncing every word I'm uh, saying in respect to Japanese names, but I believe he is like the the godfather of tentacle porn. Uh, oh, um, like over, he did over fiend, and all those like crazy. Let me see here, I I do know what you're who you're. Okay, hold on, I think I know who you're talking about. Anyways, I certainly get the gist. Anyhow, uh, yeah, I find that practicality interesting, like because you wouldn't. I mean, that's not a thing. A, a, illustrator in america would think i think it's like oh yeah i need a long career i'm gonna draw you know tentacle <laughs> yeah for sure like whatever you know whatever works and will do i mean that's the thing too about that's i guess part of tezuka and his career is that he's lauded for 
his this insane insane work ethic right which is super japanese right uh um i watched uh a drama like a cheap drama film uh, uh that was a japanese make uh about his life in animation leading up to his success in blackjack or his lack of success waiting for that hit and it's just all about him it's it's just nothing but like an hour and 20 minute movie just like hagiography about how hard working he was and and him being exhausted and all the animators being exhausted and and like you know working inhuman hours and it's it's supposed to be romantic and i'm just watching it like this is not good this is this is bad <laughs> you know people are, yeah, yeah, shouldn't. yeah yeah um but that's, same thing with miyazaki documentaries i feel right. or when you read about them like yeah. people cell shading for 20 hours a day right and, and uh it's one of the reasons why you know if i ever become a real art teacher mm -hmm. i would just tell any american kid who's trying to draw in the vein of anime mm -hmm. and become a, like an animator in that sense like just don't even you right. will never have the work ethic to right remotely compete <laughs> yeah a, or the cultural support like this is this stuff is relevant people of all ages read it mm -hmm. you know this is a very different culture i imagine tezuka was read by tons of people with different different ages and oh yeah and absolutely. whatnot i bought um a magazine a couple of years ago that it was just a book of various reprints it was actually pretty gruesome stories of like blackjack stories and stuff that were like about test tube babies or weird kind of gruesome stuff and the name of the magazine was uh you know short fun creepy tales for housewives and so it was meant to it was meant to be you bought it like a national Enquirer, like on the subway had it a read by the groceries when she you know throws in the dumpster or whatever when she's done it's uh yeah he's still widely very red you know um but yeah it's this kind of very casual thing it's he yeah it's a it's a strange kind of fandom he has there i think especially at this point in history or whatever uh yeah for sure i would like to mention that there are these miyazaki tv shows that are definitely less high on the budget that are worth looking into for people which would be sherlock hound being one of them it's mm -hmm. just Sherlock Holmes, but everyone is dogs, which is just right. a ridiculous idea. <laughs> this stuff apparently works. Um, but it's interesting to see Miyazaki's frame rate for a TV show and how mm -hmm. he still manages to make something super beautiful right. and effective without you know taking a decade to make it. What era like, or what time period was that released in? This is in the 80s, I believe, yeah. Right. It sounds a little familiar to me, like I may have seen it when I was uh, younger. Well, yeah, I think they both do this thing where they take, and I could be wrong because there's so many Tezuka books, but they will take something like Sherlock Holmes and run with it, like these kind of Western, Well, oh, you know. As I mentioned previously, Rock, Rock Holmes being the boy detective early on who becomes yeah, a, yeah. a villain that's that's rock holmes is a play on sherlock holmes uh so yeah that was his boy detective was that that there was just a play on words for him or whatever but yeah he did faust like three different times uh he has really? you know he has a a collection called clockwork apple which has very little to do with clockwork orange uh uh but it's related somehow? 
Only thematically? Oh, I guess the it, name. The name is, yeah, yeah. Like, it's really just, he just kind of lifted, he liked the name and lifted it, uh, not expecting, though, mind you, that your average sci-fi comic reader in 1960s Japan would necessarily get the reference that he could kind of just steal the name, sure, frankly, sure. Uh, and run with it. But, I mean, he also works, like, that's the the main theme. Another thing I probably talk endlessly about is is metamorphosis is his, is his jam, uh, you know. Um, it's thematically what do you mean by that? Oh, just the, it's, it's thematically yeah, yeah. in everything, you know, transmutability of, 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 of so many aspects of, you know, uh, like, you know, Astro Boy is probably the most obvious one and the, the Pinocchio story of, you know, uh, can you have a sort of human spirit in a, a you know, a mechanical shell or whatever? Uh, you know, Phoenix is all about resurrection and stuff like that uh in dororo hyakimaru is you know reclaiming his his body that he you know essentially had none of like it's there's so much transmuting. that book is perfect I, I mean i don't know if you agree but that's where i would recommend people start yeah absolutely just it just and i never thought of it from the perspective you're mentioning that he was kind of you know looking sideways at these alternative artists but it makes complete sense to me why it's my favorite because mm-hmm. sometimes i read like blackjack i just i don't know it doesn't hit uh, yeah it's meant to be digestible uh blackjack you know it's yeah, it, yeah. it's 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 is often sort of it was a resurgence in popularity but it wasn't with a hip young crowd you know it 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 was a resurgence in popularity yeah with I mean, with I guess probably with some younger people, but largely even just with housewives and stuff who found it just a brief medical thriller, interesting, you know, like a slightly on the edgier side of a Grey's Anatomy. Although I feel like I'm doing him a big disservice right, by making right, that right. analogy, but I certainly think they're a lot more interesting than that. But I get that, yeah, they're meant to be kind of brief, accessible stories or whatever. Um, well, and in terms of transformation, I'm going to just keep calling it MW because I don't remember what you said to pronounce it as. Sure, that's fine. Um, there's all like forms of, I wouldn't, I don't know if it's negative transformation, but there's like, it's much stranger. The the abilities that the main character, I don't remember the name of the main character. I can't either. I was thinking about that earlier today, actually. Um, I was on the, the, the antagonist, the young, like gay man who is doing, you know, there's, there's the priest who's the protagonist and the antagonist is, you know, the young, handsome or even more beautiful man. I mean, that's one I was thinking about that earlier today. And again, referencing rock homes in those two previous works in, in Alabaster. And the other thing in both of those, he does drag, uh, because he's this beautiful young man to go and like trick people and do his kidnappings and do his murders. And in MW and Mu, are you familiar with the star system concept in Tezuka's works? This It's very interesting. No, no, no. Okay. It's very interesting. Um, I think. Uh, so I was kind of uh, remarking that uh, Alabaster and uh, in Rock Holmes in, in these works, uh, he's like a young, handsome guy, and he's very sinister antagonist. And in both of them, again, in terms of transformation, he does drag to seduce and fool men and to do kidnappings and murders and stuff like that, which is also what the uh, antagonist, the young, beautiful like boy in Moo does as well. And like perfect drag. It's like imperceivable. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's like it's like 
Yeah, I remember reading Moo and being like, this, I can't, this is a different character. It's like completely redrawn human who's like, no one can tell the difference of. So I find that to be interesting. It's like transcendently drag. Yeah, exactly. And we all we see is just like a wig and lipstick or whatever. In fact, in the live action vampire show where Rock Holmes does a, 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 a similar gig, he basically takes off his wig and voila, like he's, right, they've right, changed right. from a female actor to this male actor. But that's Tezuka with transformation. You know, it's it's this easy to thing. Everything is mutable. But anyways, what I was going to get to with the star system was that I was surprised that Rock Home wasn't cast in this role in in MW in Moo uh, because there are such similarities between the characters. And so the star system is a kind of a shorthand that he used early on where he was just, you know, a young artist reusing character designs and character names, which isn't weird, especially when you're making kids stuff in early 1950s, late 1940s Japan. You're not expecting close examination of your work, so you can reuse a character. You can have the same villain, have the same name. Mm-hmm. And he was really into, you know, film and Hollywood. And essentially he sort of like half jokingly at some point in time made a uh, kind of a cast like he like he was a Hollywood studio and these were his regular actors that he would use and how much they all uh, charged for example uh, to appear in his, uh, to appear in his works and what was kind of started to be a lark and reusing simple designs kind of went on to be one of the most interesting aspects of his cartooning where he uses the same characters throughout his entire career, and they are—they essentially appear as actors, and so they can fit different roles. Um, like I can, you know, I keep coming back to Rock Holmes, but he was the one who started as a boy detective, and as he grew up and as his work grew up, became a, a sadist. Um, his villains recur. Uh, you know, he, so many of his characters recur. He himself are they are they actors, quote unquote, or characters? In other words, like. Do they carry, is there continuity to their development as characters or is he like plopping them in as, um, <laughs> that, do you know what I mean by that? As, absolutely. As like physical act. Absolutely. And that's the, the, the fascinating thing about it is essentially, yeah, you're, you can very much think of them as, as actors, as real world actors who are playing different roles. Their, their roles within a story are different. Uh, and so they, the characters within the stories are different, but you see the same face recur and you say, oh, hey, I know that. That's Acetylene Lamp or that's Ham Egg. A lot of the names are kind of weird. Um, but you know them and you know them from previous instances that you've seen them. And so in the same way that you can expect, you know, Robert De Niro to be like a gangster, as soon as you see some guy in a role, you kind of have this... Um, context that goes with it from your past reading there's like it's almost like an inside joke where the more you've read his work the more you get it the more you Mm -hmm. know these guys and the more you know what to expect so yeah it gets extra abstract when he tezik himself is a character in his works uh which happens on on multiple occasions is that the pig I mean, what is with that pig that shows? Is that a pig? I don't know, sometimes it's like a little... Is that him? No, that's not him. But that's actually when when kind of uh, historians talk about him, that's often considered the the prime example of the inside joke. Uh, that's like... I can't even remember its name right now. It's often translated to Gordsky. It's a, it's a, it's a 
childhood dying that his sister did when she was like six or something. And uh, yeah, it's a gourd with a pig nose or whatever. And he throws it in as weird gags when he wants to break tension or whatever. And it makes little sense. But as you get to see it, and as you've seen, like now that I've seen it recur a bunch of times, it's funny to me. It's like, it is an inside joke. I get what he's going for. I didn't the first few times I saw it, but now I do. And it's hard to explain. And so it's similar like that with his use of the characters. And um, yeah, and it's like I say- I'm sorry, you were saying he appears as well, reoccurring. Exactly. So that Tezuka himself is also- a star system character in that he, a, a guy who looks like Osamu Tezuka, is drawn by Osamu Tezuka to appear in roles where he's playing facsimiles of Osamu Tezuka on multiple occasions. But it's not always the same one because, again, they are roles. So it's an artist drawing an actor of himself in roles that are meant to be facsimiles of himself. It's very. <laughs> meta-textual. It's very strange, but I, I shouldn't go that deep on the whole star system scene. But the main point is this concept of reused characters, characters redone and reused so heavily that they become very much like actors in roles that you have some outside concept of and that, that bring baggage with them that adds a context that is just really interesting as a reader. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's very audacious to even... Well, uh, try something of that nature. I guess you were saying in some ways it maybe started out of like, um, not laziness, but convenience, you know, like I'm going to redraw like this and that. But then to develop that uh, potential laziness into something that ambitious is very interesting to me. It's only something that would work in a prolific giant body. Exactly. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it can only work in that context. And yeah, I don't think he sought out initially to do it that way. He kind of just wanted to... Uh, ape Hollywood, you know, um, but, uh, yeah, by the end of his career, it's this really interesting aspect to his, to his work. Uh, yeah. So I'm trying to imagine again from like someone who's just hearing about him, which sounds improbable, but worth playing through in the mind. What would be the next, cause I rarely point towards, towards, or people towards Buddha, mm -hmm. um, but maybe that says something about what I'm looking for in the work. But like, what do you, where would you send them next if they they read Dororo and then? Yeah, I, you know, I just recently read Buddha for the first time. I had high expectations for it because, you know, I, he's a really dynamic, fun, interesting uh, artist when he was younger. Uh, he's very kind of weird in his mid-period and he's trying to be dark and sometimes succeeding and not. He's, I think he's at his best as a writer in the 80s when he's, you know, uh, Message to Adolf is like a long, really complicated story. And it's one of the rare times he pulls off a complicated narrative that uh, mm -hmm. has a lot of elements that come together. Um, and so I had high hopes for Buddha as one of his major works of his, of his 80s. And yeah, I was kind of underwhelmed by it. I don't know if it was because I was unfamiliar with, uh, you know, to some degree with Siddhartha's biography. But, uh, yeah, I was, I was definitely let down by it myself. I mean, Phoenix is often where people would suggest to go next. It, it's his self-described best work. Um, and it's, it's, it's notoriously out of print and wildly expensive to get in paper. Uh, so you would generally have to be. Really? Yeah. Oh, goodness. Uh, so 12, the 12-volume 12 set will run you... 
$1,500 at least, like at least. Wow. Um, so Viz is, it's a little surprising that they haven't uh, reprinted it yet. And people have like lots of speculation about the issue with the rights. But um, yeah, so if you can, however, uh, find it digitally for whatever means you want, you know, it's often considered his his landmark work that he did from the late 60s until his death. It's kind of considered to be unfinished. Um, the basic premise is sort of that each work often has to do with the concept of kind of uh, uh, immortality and reincarnation in a bit of an abstract sense. But the very first book takes place in sort of, sort of prehistoric Japan. The second book takes place... Uh, at the death of the planet Earth, the third book takes place a little bit further in time than the first book did. So it ricochets back and forth through time from the beginning to the end, working its way inwards. And so essentially the final work would have been a modern day piece. Uh, do you get what I'm saying? <laughs> With the, yeah, 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 the way yeah. it's... Um, and so, yeah, it's... Um, a really audacious kind of thing and so you see these the phoenix is this sort of uh life force that uh represents you know general humanism but also the the need of life and uh to just sort of go on but in a not necessarily compassionate manner you know uh the life persists you know, whether people like it or not, or are comfortable with it or not, you know, even right, if it's right. a cruel situation or whatever. Uh, yeah, it's a really broad, interesting work with a lot of really excellent writing. Uh, like, And you can read the volumes individually as well. They are standalone works for uh, Karma, like volume four. Karma is often considered to be the best one. And yeah, around that section, they're really good. But it, yeah, it also really depends what you're looking for. I think that his, like I said, his early works are really fun if you are, and any, you know, if you're the kind of person who can get into, like, I've never really liked Carl Barks and the Ducks and stuff like that, like the Scrooge works, but yeah. I appreciate that the cartooning is masterful, you know, or whatever. I often find that Tezuka's early works to me are like that. They're these really fun, dynamic, uh, cartooning that's that's really impressive but i kind of find that there's a little i don't even know if it's just the cultural difference but i find them just be a lot more fun and interesting and strange basically i mean i, I you know and sometimes i don't know like i say if it's the cultural issues but i find there's just strange elements in all of his work like it's i know it's not utterly surreal by any means but there are really bizarre elements in almost everything to be found somewhere that uh, i personally enjoy yeah, I would agree. That's what I like about it is that it's not surreal, um, but like you said, it's it's strange. But it's not strange in like a, I don't know. Strange is even the word. He's clearly a very deep fella in some some way, mm -hmm. and I'm not even sure I understand his worldview. Mm -hmm. I care care to, mm -hmm. but he's. I think the audacity of some of the. Like, what he's trying to do sometimes is just, uh, it's amazing how much he did mm -hmm. and how much he had tried to do. Yeah, I, and tried to do is very much him, and it also represents his worldview a lot. You know, he, he is just a general, very general, like, kind of positive humanism in terms of his outward philosophy, you know. Uh, he does do a lot of, you know, he speaks out against uh, racism a lot. 
he often doesn't stick the landing and will have like, you know, a problematic depiction in it or, you know, they'll just be, uh, he'll miss the mark, you know, using uh, in Astro Boy, for example, uh, inequality uh, amongst uh, people is, uh, you know, he uses that as a metaphor a lot, but starting with having robots be your starting point, you know, creatures that are entities that were built to serve, it's already a flawed analogy from the get-go, you know? Um, so he does, you know, he, yeah, he just, he tries to make a lot of general humanist positive statements that often he, he just makes a misstep that muddles a lot of it, unfortunately. Um, but still, I, I think he deserves credit for his intent. But yeah, once again, I think you would do have to kind of digest a lot of the work to sift through uh, what exactly that is. I think, yeah, getting back to sort of the, the question that I think if we're talking to general uh, comics readers, alt comics readers, um, maybe even instead of something as hard to find as, as Phoenix, um, a publisher called DMP put out just a bunch of his, his weird kind of sci-fi anthologies from the late 60s. Um, and yeah, you know, I really just kind of suggest a lot of those. Uh, the Crater... Uh, like I said, Clockwork Apple, um, Under the Air, uh, The Thief, Inoue, uh, Akikazu. Um, they're, they're, you know, honestly, all of them are pretty good. There's one called Metamorphosis. Uh, it has like a, a weird retelling of, of Franz Kafka's uh, Metamorphosis. Like it's, uh, they're all quite good, you know, and they're, digestible because they are sci-fi stories but they are sometimes brutal and and generally all very strange uh so yeah i think those might actually be perhaps what i would recommend instead mm. um and, yeah, and they think, are in yeah, print and available too uh, unlike phoenix hmm. yeah i think that's what's so interesting about him is um not paradoxes but he has a a high low thing that happens a lot mm. where he might be referencing Kafka, but still his drawing style it has it's imbued with those early Astro Boy days, no matter what I find. Mm -hmm. yeah, stylistically it's like born out of that more soft, childish. Even when he's making a woman who's supposed to be sexy, it's mm -hmm. like well, a yeah. fruit or something. I don't know how to describe <laughs> yeah, the, that, the body. And that gets back to exactly what I said. My very first impression of him was was the burnt orphan who is weirdly cute. Uh, yeah, it's strange that there is this cuteness. And so I think you have to be prepared for that in the work. And I mean, I think people still understand that it's very skilled cartooning, but you've got to be ready to, uh, you know, yeah, accept that although it is cute at face value, it may be heavy. And, and actually you did remind me what I was get, meant to get at there, that while he has a general humanism, like there's this famous quote that Tezuka Productions kind of likes to attribute to him where he says like, uh, my message is to love all things. And they put it on t-shirts and stuff like that. But if you've read it, love all things. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's pablum. It's boring. It's terrible. It's a terribly bland philosophy yeah, 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 yeah. and message, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And I think once you've read enough of his works, that's certainly in execution does not seem to be his view of humanity. Like that may be his prescription, but I think that he feels that humanity is failing utterly. I mentioned, you know, the second book of Phoenix uh, takes place at the end of planet Earth. And then, yeah, it's, it's an apathetic, lazy, self-absorbed human race is kind of just doesn't 
real they understand that they're killing themselves and the planet, but they just can't be bothered to do anything about it. Mass nuclear Armageddon, everyone dies. Uh, there's a book that I think is getting translated in the upcoming year called Birdman Anthology, which is uh, after humanity has destroyed itself. Uh, bird people uh, sort of get a second shot at running the planet, and uh, it's very animal farm in that they just go ahead and repeat all the exact same mistakes and become the exact same, you know, terrible people. Uh, he does not seem to have a super positive view of humanity from having read a lot of his works. So although I think he may be trying to uh, bestow messages that are positive, I don't think he has a positive outlook on people, um, which, you know, I find relatable uh, and, and, and interesting. And again, a strange dichotomy in pairing with his aesthetic visually. Yeah, I mean, actually... That evokes Miyazaki for me, who's like can seem grumpy, mm-hmm. uh, but then say some really life affirming shit. Right. Uh, but then, like Nausicaa, the book is like really quite dark. Right. And I don't know. That tension's always charming to me. Mm-hmm. Like rat- rationally cynical, but in action optimistic. Mm-hmm. That's that's. Uh, I find that relatable and valuable. It seems real for some reason. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think it speaks to just sort of our experience of being people where we're aware of this and kind of in a constant struggle to not get bogged down in what makes life difficult or the world a sad place to live in. And, you know, our means of escape are often so fluffy and ephemeral and silly, but it seems hard to imagine that we can escape in them. But, we do it on a daily basis, you know, and, right, and right, right. still have to face the rough from, uh, yeah. You know, I, I feel this erotic, uh, that I've seen before that you made this post about is telling of his, whatever he thinks is sexual. Um, because even those are not, I mean, they're not pornographic in any way to me. They're no, no. They're just weird as hell. There was, yeah, that's, that is, of course, not surprisingly, my most popular post ever. Uh, it, I guess if anyone's obviously can't see it, but uh, yeah, my Instagram is at Jim Jamie James Bradshaw. And uh, the post I guess you're referring to is, it's, and it's interesting a story as well. It's his daughter after his death, this was only maybe about eight years ago, uh, finally got, I don't know, a special key made or something to open a drawer because she didn't want to destroy his, his desk that he worked at and, and found those, those images and post them up online. And of course, uh, Twitter at the time was just like, Oh, when your daughter outs your furry porn or whatever. And it was a big laugh, even though it was really actually an artistic find of like great relevance or whatever. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they're really interesting. And I think they also go to speak, like I was saying to you, that he's all about metamorphosis, right? He's, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not just these sort of sexual figures of partly women who are also sort of animals. A lot of them are these uh, metamorphic changes of women between cars and women and, and like rice cookers and women. And, uh, and it may seem like these are weird. I don't know either artistic practices or personal fantasies or it's, it's hard to place, but I don't know if you remember in um, a thousand and one nights, for example, there's a whole bunch of scenes just like that uh, where there's women who yeah, turn into yeah. snakes and back and forth again. And a fairy who I can't remember. 
um, if there's also a, a transformation into a mouse in that. But there's a whole bunch of metamorphoses between animals and women uh, in that as well that are like... And those movies are also kind of meant to be erotic, even though it's hard to imagine who they succeeded for. They're even sold in the West with dubs as triple X movies. Uh, and I can only imagine how disappointed the audiences must have <laughs> been. Um, because, yeah, they aren't sexy. They're fucking weird, but they're not sexy. Like, I, and, I, and I'm a big fan, but... Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's just all very interesting. So he's called a furry a lot, I guess, in that sort of recontextualization of, of you know, looking at it from a modern lens. And I don't know, did he find this stuff attractive? Who knows? Maybe. Like, I, you know, I really don't. It's, ah, he has this innocence about him that even his violence and perversity doesn't seem to access. Mm-hmm. It's just like this, like he can't, like I'm saying, like I don't think he can get to this kind of, place and maybe that's what he envied about the alternative and i think uh, japanese manga going on at the time i think that's a weakness of his uh, well it's obviously you're not referring to it really as a strength but um in stuff like ode to kirihito and other things in a lot of his sort of uh gekiga flavored work there's a lot of rape scenes and some of them are genuinely brutal and upsetting and and he depicts them like so often with a kind of surreal manner that yeah, makes them yeah. as affecting as they should be but it's almost really the frequency that it's almost it's a shorthand for how to identify a villain and somebody who's repulsible and and also uh, a woman who deserves empathy basically you know and it's it almost becomes cheap um and yeah, that I think is one of the kind of weaknesses that come out when you are mimicking uh, artists who have come by this material more naturally in terms of their connection to it in their real life. You know, he is, he was from a very young age, this sort of really successful neoliberal artist, you know, when it, with a rather comfortable life. So he is working from a bit of a detached vantage or whatever. And so he deserved credit for trying to uh, step into dark territories. But yeah, certainly sometimes because of that, it reads as a little false because I don't think it, he has much echoes of it in his own life, basically. Right, right. So outside of his comics, there's animation. Mm-hmm. And then I see you posted about this. I've never actually seen this film. Is it Vampire with this kind of mixed yeah, that, animation in live action? Right. So that was, despite that was one of the, you know, manga that I was talking about earlier, uh, that was one of his kind of early attempts at dark work and Rock Holmes is the villain in it. Despite the fact that he would look back at it as betrayal of his fans, it still somehow became, it's, it's often very hard to track how these thought process going with him but it became this project for a mixed media uh, uh animation uh, and uh, live action thing it's a really interesting show and it has as you can see from the post this incredible transformation sequence right and it must have been wildly expensive they use it every episode of course um but yeah, it's an adaptation of the manga, and um, he and it's the manga is itself one of the works where he is one of the characters. So the uh, it's kind of more about werewolves or people who can sh- change shapes. Again, all about metamorphosis, who can change shapes into animals. Um, and uh, he takes one of these people under his wing 
Tezuka himself, the character, and anyways. And um, in the show, it, there's a substitute as a middle management person at um, Mushi Pro or Tezuka Productions, basically. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, it's it's and, and at the same time, this was in the very the tail end of the '60s. He was also doing the Dororo animation. Uh, at the same time, you know, and at the same time, he was putting out Com magazine. Com was a magazine that was that he published that um, was itself meant to be an answer, kind of to uh, Garo in terms mm-hmm. of being an, an alt, more mature. And it, it's it, uh, Com number one is where Phoenix premiered. It was the first issue of that, uh, and he had Shotaro Ishinomori uh, in issue one of that, and that's. Likewise, Shotaro Ishinomori kind of came out with his major surreal work, um, Fantasy World June, in Calm Magazine. So it was kind of both of them, and, and numerous other artists saying, look, you know, we're mature now, but also not, we're not trying in the same way to, to mimic Gekiga artists. We're trying to sort of do our own thing uh, now, like, you know, Phoenix still works in the toolbox of fantasy and, and uh, sci-fi and stuff like that instead of being just gritty real-world issues like a Gekiga comic might might have. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on the Metropolis anime? Uh, it's good. It's good. I'm not a huge... Like, I don't love it. Uh, it's fine, I guess. I don't know. I've watched it a few times. I like it. You know? What, what, it's interesting. When I was younger, I saw it, and it it affected me quite a bit. I, I did not realize that he had made a 1949 manga of Metropolis, right. which, again, is interesting that he would reference a Fritz Lang film. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting to see what uh, cultural like landmarks he likes to reference, um, which are more highbrow than you would expect, I think. Just looking at the style, even. For sure, for sure. Although, when you watch the two together... Uh, Although he's taking the name, it's hard to make a lot of a thoroughfare between one to the other. Like, there's a you know a general. I, I mean, I guess that it is a futuristic creation of a modern, new form of life. So that's there, but it's still lacking. Like, I think a lot of these things are often just him outright taking concepts, names that sound of interest to him, but not necessarily putting in the legwork to make any kind of intellectual and again it was a comic for kids in you know in 1947 or 8 or whatever like that you know so i think he's pulling neat things that he hears out of the ether but yeah not i i think we almost give him too much credit to call it like you know much of a a reference or something um but he does it a ton you're absolutely correct like he does it so often um, and yeah. yeah, I suppose it's hard to imagine a pre-internet world where you're you're pulling all these references and you probably aren't thinking much mm-hmm. about it in a sense. Like you're not thinking people are going to be looking at it in 50 years and analyzing how deeply it's connected to this or that. Um, that like informs, clock- yeah, so much yeah. of that stuff. Yeah, and that you aren't concerned about like copyright laws or plagiarism. He did like, if I remember correctly, he did do a Bambi book that was licensed. Uh, but he also did a Pinocchio book that was not, you know, like, uh, Hmm. um, it's, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a wild west in terms of copyright and inspirations. And so, yeah, there was definitely a lot of pulling that was, you know, just why the heck not without the same kind of considerations to rights and plagiarism and whatever that we would have now. Uh, 
Yeah. Well, I think that this episode serves as a great intro to Tezuka. Mm-hmm. I'd like to do another one someday if you're down. Sure. With, um, I'm probably going to say his name wrong, but the other artist you focus on greatly, which is Sugiu, Sugiura? Uh, yeah, Shigeru Sugiura. Uh, now. Sugiura. So, but... Am I singing the way accurately the way the Japanese person would? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> so yeah, um, but yeah, I guess if you were to like you know say it as an English person just reading it phonetically, so it's like Sugiura. Uh, Sh- Sugiura. Yeah, Shigeru yeah. Sugiura. I honestly, there was so little in English about Shigeru Sugiura that you know when I did something uh, about him for Bubbles, it was really just here's what's come out in English from him before. You know he. Uh, um, I know I'm kind of spoiling what this podcast would be, but honestly, I think that's what I'm getting at is that I unfortunately don't have, I don't think the content for another one, because although he's an amazing artist, yeah, there is so little. He was in, uh, he had a, a four page strip in raw magazine, number mm-hmm. seven. And, uh, Gary Panter and Charles Burns are like fans to this day and stuff like that. Um, and, um, and, Ryan Holmberg put out with, with picture box, one book of his, uh, uh, last of the Mohicans. And there is a new book. And yeah, if there was anyone, you know, that I can urge to people, uh, even though we've talked about Tezuka the entire time, the one thing I would probably say to buy is there will be a Sugiura book coming out in the end of December, uh, called Saratobi Sasuke from, uh, New York uh, review publishing, and so that is what you've got to grab, and that is because it. Uh, Last Mohicans was one of the kind of books that sort of sank Picture Box because it sold so poorly. Um, well, I yeah, I, I own it, and I although I love his style, I find that book very very strange in a way that I'm not saying is good. Uh, and yeah. I, I can't I can't even explain why it could be the content. But it's also that super weird you'll find it a lot in alternative uh manga where it's like almost like collage photorealist drawing with these cartoony moments. It just didn't work for me though. Super stiff in a weird way. Those are landmarks of his like latter career, the the hyper real uh, and especially kind of in the weird portraits with the hyper cartoony. And uh, he doesn't really do that so much early on. It's his early career that personally I love the most, where he's he's not really being a willful surrealist. He's just kind of being a weird, silly cartoonist for kids who happens to be <laughs> pretty surreal. Um, and so, yeah, Last of the Mohicans, I think it was definitely a, a really poor choice. And I think Ryan Holmberg uh, and Dan Nadel know this now. It was not a great choice to go with for a first book to introduce people to Sugiura. Um, yeah, yeah. And so hopefully Sarah Toby Sasuke will, will serve better. Um, it still doesn't fall under the category of his really kind of early work, which, again, like I say, is what I think... Uh, a lot of people would enjoy the most. But that being said, a lot of yeah, alt-manga people who are familiar with his work do love his latter more, like I say, deliberately kind of surreal and strange comics. Um, and they're also really good. So yeah, I definitely urge people to check that uh, that out. Like I say, it should be coming out uh, mid-December, I think. Uh, yeah. But yeah, honestly, I don't know that there's a podcast worth of well, information yeah, that, from cool. me. Ryan Holmberg, <laughs> if he would be interested. True. Ryan True. Holmberg would be a great choice. Um, he knows a lot. But there's just so little 
in English about him out there. Um, I've actually mean, machine translated uh, like a handful of, of interviews and stuff like that. Um, but still, it's, that's a massive amount of work for a really small amount of information. So uh, although, yeah, I'm, I'm knowledgeable compared to most, yeah, could we talk about him for you know more than ten minutes? Probably not. So gotcha. um, good to know. Good but to know. still, hopefully, like I say, this this upcoming book will increase the uh, interest about him, and I'm sure because it's uh, uh, coming from my Homburg, I'm sure it's going to have a uh, an essay with it that'll be informative and stuff like that. And there is writing about him on uh, from Homburg on uh, the TCG website as well. Uh, so that's there too. But uh, gotcha. yeah, uh, still, this was. Uh, yeah, this is very fun. And uh, yeah, I didn't expect to talk about Tezuka the whole time, but I'm not surprised. I, I could go on about him forever. Uh, yes, this is really enjoyable. Thank you. It made it, yeah, it made me feel like a smarty. So thanks. It good. was really enjoyable. Yeah. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll do it again sometime. Yeah, good to meet you. And thank you for your time. For sure. You too. Music by Dory Bavarsky and Mingja Chen. Next up for the 52nd episode, we have myself interviewed by Digby. You won't want to miss it. Bradshaw, Bradshaw, Bradshaw.